Welcome to Breakthrough Radio, a global business radio show where smarter strategies deliver breakthrough results by adding an entrepreneurial touch driving today's profits. Now, get ready for three powerful breakthrough segments with Michelle Price. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending on where you're tuning into from. We want to welcome you to Breakthrough Radio. This is Michelle Price here, where we're coming to you from the third coast of Houston, Texas today. And on Breakthrough Radio, we're celebrating nine years of talking about how to master the internal and external strategies of business. It's the third Monday of the month, and that's when we get to hear from myself, Michelle Price, for our breakthrough tip on leadership in the technology-driven world. The breakthrough tip is a short tip at the top of the show where you can go take action on that information right now. Our featured spot today is with Katie Tynan. Katie is a free agent, and we're working with people and technology comes together. She provides strategy and operational guidance to high-growth organizations. Our featured interview is a 30-minute conversation that's a nice deep dive into the topic of the day, allowing you to gain a much better understanding, level of knowledge, and application for your business. Wrapping up Breakthrough Radio is our Breakthrough Bite with Yard Akalu, the founder of Alcove and our go-to guy on the future of workforce. The Breakthrough Bite is a 10-minute segment that's not as long as our deep dive, not quite as short as our Breakthrough Tip, because it allows us to meet all the learning styles of our listeners. I want to thank you for coming to listen to Breakthrough Radio. And if it's your first visit, please make sure you thank the person who told you about it. Now, here's a scoop. You're going to want to listen without distraction. That's why you only need to write down one URL today. It's www.thebreakthroughradio.com. Now, every week you have access to a blog post that gives you the frame of the conversation for each and every episode. Everything we talk about today, something we may reference to as a resource, we link to it there. Whether it's how to reach Katie Yard or myself, make sure you do visit and connect with each one of us and do more than follow. Reach out and truly connect. Ask us a question, engage us in conversation, and of course, when it makes sense for your business, hire us to learn interesting insights on leadership through catastrophes. You know, many of you around the world and in the United States have seen what's been happening in Houston during the catastrophe, Hurricane Harvey. Now, being the eternal student of leadership and what makes it work and work well, I wanted to share with you today three things that showed up during Harvey from effective leaders during this time of unknown and a lot of human trauma. The three things I've observed with effective leaders has been their ability to activate deep listening, acceptance, and advocacy. Now, during our catastrophe, you will see people at their worst and at their best. It affects each one of us differently. As leaders... It's our responsibility to ask the deeper questions in these times and be a beacon of guidance. When you activate deep listening during a catastrophe, you allow both yourself and the other party, you heard me right, you need to feel heard as a leader too. Do the work with yourself first, and it will translate into the work you do with others. Doing your personal work does not have to be a long, drawn-out process. It can be as simple as learning a few really good power questions. For example, what is the actual need here right now? And then two quick follow-up questions. How can I help to bring that to fruition as simply as possible? Am I the right person to lead this? Now, if that last answer is no, then you want to say to yourself, who has the skills to do this better than me? And when you activate deep, your deep listening ear, you will find it easier to navigate through challenges and to delegate the next steps quicker. You might want to ask yourself, what does acceptance have to do with leading in a catastrophe? Isn't that when you, you know, we think about, 
Wait a minute, catastrophes. This is when we need doers and action takers. Acceptance sounds like a process that we don't have time for during a, a catastrophe. And these are all good questions. Here's what I've observed here in Houston during Hurricane Harvey. Those who were able to shift their thinking into acceptance were able to gain more cooperation. Cooperation from their neighbors, from a FEMA official, from volunteers. And activating your acceptance mindset allows you to stop being in resistance to what is and to the solution that wants to be there for you. But your focus is so much on the problem, you get stuck in that space. Now, we've all experienced this before. It happens when you skip over deep listening and you try to take immediate action. We're human beings, and we have a specific needs for our brains to adhere to. And when you want to shift out of survival mode into using your cognitive abilities and having those around you do the same, places an ease around you that others feel and they sense, giving them the ability to either join you in that ease or to move on, both of which serves your purpose. Now for number three, advocacy. Allow me to share the definition first. To advocate is to speak or write in favor of, support or urge by argument, to recommend publicly. You know, a leader's role is to guide and direct. And if you're not advocating for someone, are you leading? Are you really helping? An effective advocate knows how to persevere and not give in, but also knows when it's an appropriate time to reach a compromise. Always keeping in mind who they're there for and what they're trying to accomplish. They understand that they have a responsibility, first and foremost, to those they serve. Today, as you go through your work day, ask yourself, have I, active, have I activated my deep listening ear first with myself and then with those I'm leading? Then look at if you're stuck in the space of the problem or have you been able to shift into acceptance mindset. You can then tell by how you feel. It will work so well, you might stop yourself afterwards and say, hey, that worked so much better than before. Be willing to give yourself a quick debrief and ask these two questions. What worked well? How can I do it differently next time to help it work better? That's your leadership breakthrough tip today. And if you enjoyed this, you would really enjoy my keynotes on leadership in a technology-driven world. So make sure you do reach out to me with the links below from our show page right next to my picture in today's blog post, and let's customize that leadership keynote for your team. In our last episode, before our break this summer, we talked to Lisa Feldman Barrett on how emotions are made. She helps us wrap our brains around the role emotions play in our lives, including our business lives. Now, a big company that's been a great example of tapping into the emotions of its customers is Ford. How will you follow Ford's lead and be more strategic in how you connect and serve your customers? Today's consumer has changed the game of buying for business, no matter what industry you sit. It's why having a buyer journey map has become mandatory if you want to succeed and grow. That is exactly what Growth Hacking CMO does with their clients when they're approached for help with growth in business and revenues. Growth Hacking CMO are masters at crafting that roadmap and then showing clients how to structure their execution with precision. Defining what's important to your customers today and then using analytics to see how customers are making their buying decisions is a savvy way to prepare for their future needs and for you to stay relevant. And when you know what is valuable to your customer, you can use that to capture their attention and have it be welcome. Whether you have 10 or 10,000 customers, your customer journey map saves you time, money, and headaches. It is your sweet spot in business, one that can help you grow profits and gain traction over your competitors. 
So connect and discover how growthhackingcmo.com can help you do that for the last quarter of 2017. Before we start a featured interview, remember we appreciate it when you share today's show by going to www.thebreakthroughradio.com. So now as you are here with me and we are going to be joining Katie Tynan, let me tell you just a tiny bit about her before we start. Katie is an author, speaker, consultant, and coach, and an internationally recognized expert in how work is evolving. In a work where 70% of employees are disengaged, Katie helps organizations ditch out of the data management practices and create an inspiring and engaging work culture. She's also the author of several books, Survive Your Promotion, The 90-Day Success Plan for New Managers, and her upcoming book, and How Did I Not See This Coming? The New Manager's Guide to Avoiding Total Disasters. Today, we're going to be talking about her book, Free Agent. We're going to be learning from her expertise in that space. And so you guys, please join me as we welcome Katie Tynan to Breakthrough Radio. How are you doing today, Katie? I'm doing great, Michelle. It's great to be here. <laughs> Thank you. You know, Katie, I've discovered something over the nine going on ten years that I've been interviewing brilliant minds like yours that's, that there's usually a powerful personal story behind why the guest is aligned to their topic of expertise. So share with us what is that story and how is it influenced what you're doing right now? You know, that's such a great question, and I love it as a question because a lot of times when I do interviews and people jump right into the tactical, tell us how to do this, and I agree with you that the story sometimes makes all the difference. And I want to start actually by tying back into what you were talking about at the start of the episode, and it just caught me when you talked about the acceptance mindset because there's such a perfect tie between that and what I personally went through, which then inspired me to start writing and speaking and talking about how work is changing. And that's that I fell off the career wagon, not because I got laid off, but because I realized I was a terrible employee. I'm a really bad fit when I'm an employee. And every time I take a job, like a quote unquote normal job, Within six months, I'm frustrated, I'm bored, I'm disengaged, I'm aggravated, and it just kept happening to me time and time again. And I would start to think, gosh, I must be weird. It must be me. And then I started to do research because that's what I do and to write and to talk to people. And I realized, wow, it isn't me. There are a lot of people out here who just really feel like they don't fit with that traditional Monday to Friday, nine to five box that we had crafted for many, many years and said, this is what a job is. So we're in the middle of this fantastic and I think very exciting change in how people work and where people work and how companies and people relate to one another. But for me, it was a very personal journey of realizing that I wasn't fitting in and I was unhappy and I wasn't providing good value to my employers. And then I had that acceptance mindset, okay, I don't want to struggle against this. I want to find the new normal that works for me, that works for my potential clients. I know I can add value in this marketplace. I know there's awesome stuff I can do, but I want to do it on my terms. So that's how I got here. That's how I ended up speaking and writing and and now really spending a lot of time working with companies and with managers, trying to help them develop talent and understand these trends and be able to help people within their organizations be successful in this new working environment. So I'm curious to learn, since you do this on a full-time basis with companies as well as individuals, what are you noticing this past year is kind of bubbling or surfacing to the top of that pile of challenges. You know, I know there's a plethora of them, but usually there's patterns that show up in that, and those patterns change as people and organizations evolve. So what's really been floating to the top this this year? You know, I think what I've seen the most conversation about, and it's really evolved over the last couple of years, but I feel like it's peaking a little bit now, 
Um, and I'll backtrack a little and just give you an example of a story that came up in my feed the other day that said that um, they're going to integrate, and I'm going to get this wrong and remember which of the two they're going to integrate, but they're going to integrate Alexa with um, Cortana. So Cortana is, of course, Microsoft's virtual assistant, and Alexa is Amazon's. And then there's Siri, and then there's Bixby, and there's all the other ones. But think for a minute about Microsoft versus Amazon and realize that unlike, for example, Google and Amazon or Apple and Google, Microsoft and Amazon don't really compete. So they looked at each other and said, huh, how could we leverage what you do and what I do to provide some value to other people? And what I immediately realized when I read that article was, how close are we, really, how close are we to being able to talk to an AI like it's an assistant, a genuine personal assistant? So, for example, could I say, hey, Cortana, can you draft a proposal based on the one I wrote last week for thus and such a company and put in the information from this other company, which of course you can find on the internet, and put that draft in my inbox so that I can review it. That's a powerful thing for an AI to be able to do. So we have been talking for a really long time and people have been worrying for, for a really long time, and, and when I say a really long time, I mean like two or three years, that robots were going to replace us all and artificial intelligence was going to replace us all and we were all going to be out of work. And I don't think that's the case. And I'm really sort of anti the whole idea that we're competing with robots and we need to be worried about that. I'm really pro the idea that technology can help us do what we do. But anything that is simple enough for technology to do for us and knowing that technology gets more sophisticated every day Anything that's routine, that's repetitive, that can be understood by machine learning and machine language processing is going to get done by machines. And for me, I think that's awesome. And I think for a lot of people, that's awesome because it's going to free us up to do work that really matters and to do work that's really important. But I think a lot of people are still very caught up in the fear and the worry because they're not technology savvy. They don't understand. They've seen, you know, too many movies where Skynet takes over the world, um, and they're concerned about this process. But to me, that's the trend I'm seeing is that we're finally very close to being able to capitalize on artificial intelligence in a meaningful way right at our fingertips to do business on a daily basis. You know, I love that you brought that up because both Yared, who comes on the the third Monday of the month, and he talks about things more from, you know, the future of workforce perspective and, and, and how to use user design experience in that space. But then the first Monday, Jeff Shuey comes on, who's done a lot of work in the Microsoft world. He talks more about the intersection of technology and people. And so we've, we've had multiple conversations over the past two years about the fears that we hear people talk about all the time and our stance in both of those segments is we'll talk about the pros and the cons, the positive and the negatives, and then we start pointing out the opportunities that it gives, you know, listeners to actually, as you say, do the work that really matters instead of getting kind of drugged down, whether it's physically, whether it's intellectually or emotionally, by the mundane work that they don't need to be doing. And I'm hoping pretty soon that more and more people are going to really kind of absorb that and start to really feel what that means for them in their role because I think that will allow them to activate their creativity in a really new and different way. And all of a sudden they're going to start thinking about how they can contribute a new type of value because they've kind of shifted themselves out of that old thinking. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And it's one of the things that I talk about a lot is, and again, it goes back to the acceptance mindset. There are still people who I feel, and organizations who are clinging to a structure that just doesn't exist anymore. 
And so this idea that you're going to get people, that you're going to attract and retain the best talent by having people come into an office on a very rigid schedule and sit absolutely together in cubicles is just not going to work for a lot of organizations and a lot of individuals anymore. And so it's not to say there's no such thing as a good office environment. It's not to say that there's nothing of value in having people sit together and work together and collaborate. But to me, what we're really seeing in the marketplace is just a shift to a much more flexible working environment to the idea that there's many, many different players, that you don't just have employees and owners anymore. You have employees, you have AIs, you have contractors, you have cloud services, you have all kinds of different resources that are in play in order to get things done. And I think what happens because of that is that it creates, and I say this all the time, it has made management much more complicated. So management has been hard for years. Management has never been easy and leadership has never been easy, but now it's a hundred times harder because now you have to manage people you can't see. You have to manage resources that aren't people. You have to think much more robustly about how you get things done as a leader than just to say, I'm going to hire 10 full-time employees. I'm going to sit them down in their desks. They're going to be right here next to me, and I'm going to walk around and stare at them until they do their jobs, which didn't work, by the way, in the past. So I don't know why we kept doing it for a long time. But ultimately, today's leaders and today's management processes are just much more complicated. It's like ninja management, I say all the time. It's not the same as the kind of management strategies that we were taught growing up. And that, to me, is one of the other biggest evolutions that I've seen is organizations are really trying to wrap their brains around how to develop leadership skills, how leadership works, how management works, what the difference is. And it's, it's opening up a lot of really interesting conversations. Oh, my gosh. There's so many different directions I want to go from that, that wonderful answer that you just gave. I'm like a little kid over here going, eeny, meeny, miny, mo." One of the words that really uh, popped out was when you talked about resources, and we've seen how our options to resources are changing. Are you noticing any uh, additional resources that maybe traditionally weren't really thought of, but now in that new style of thinking, they're um, they're showing up in new ways? Um, and how are you noticing people's reaction to that? Do they just not see them, or is it kind of like some of the conversations we have about sociology? Some people are woke and some people aren't, and so the ones who are woke yeah. see it, and the ones who aren't don't. <laughs> so let's talk about resources a little bit. Yeah, I think that's a great topic, and I think it's very interesting to watch some of the dynamics that are going on. So we all know that our brains are hardwired, unfortunately, to be biased. Our brains are hardwired to go down certain tracks because those things have worked for us in the past. And sometimes we do that unconsciously. So we choose to work with people who are similar to us because that makes us feel comfortable. Well, that's great, but it doesn't produce the best results. So we want to open up people's minds about a lot of different things, whether it's from a diversity perspective of thought, whether it's from working in different environments. There's all kinds of different things that are happening right now. And I think, unfortunately, there's some people who are sort of stuck in the tracks that they're in. And they've been on that. It's like being on a train, right? They've been on those tracks a long time. They're really comfortable there. They don't really want to branch out. They get to a switch and they just want to keep going straight. And then you do have a lot of people in the marketplace, especially when you talk about the millennial generation and you talk about the generation that's now coming behind the millennial generation, you talk about people who lead by thinking about how technology can provide them the resource that they're looking for, as opposed to leading by thinking, I need to hire a person to do this. 
So it's just a very different mindset. And frankly, it's just a different habit. And it doesn't mean one is right and one is wrong. And in fact, what I've seen is when you get the full power of the multi-generational workforce to work together, meaning you get both of those people to sit together and say, what's the best way to do this? How can we use the things I know really well and I'm comfortable with and the things you know really well and are comfortable with and put those together and come out with a great creative solution? So I think the breadth of opportunity for resourcing is so humongous right now. I mean, just think about website design. And if I were going to design a website, I don't know, 10 years ago, even in the dawn of the ages of website design, I would have to find a person who had very specific expertise, and I would have to work with that person in order to get what I wanted. And now I might be able to design it myself. I could go to a cloud service and use templates that they already have. I might be able to put something up on an Upwork or one of the other resourcing sites and have people bid to have the work done for me. Or I might go take a coding class and do it myself. So the different ways that we can do things are so broad that sometimes it can be overwhelming. And I do actually see a lot of people and organizations fall into analysis paralysis. Oh my God, how are we going to do this? We could do it one of 40 ways. And then they get stuck there. So I think for what I'm seeing right now in the marketplace, the organizations that are leveraging the strengths of all the different resources that they have are the ones that are doing it the best. But it's hard. It's really hard because the choices are very, very broad. You know, one of the things that really kind of stuck out for me as I was listening to you share that, Katie, was how, you know, at the very end, or you can go take a cutting class and learn to do it yourself. Because what I've watched in the startup world is how, because people are in what they call the bootstrap mode, they think that they have to do everything themselves, that they have to learn how to do everything themselves, because they don't feel like they have the resources to hire or pay someone to do it. And I'm just wondering, whatever clients have that style of thinking and you know they need to shift gears on that, how how you found to be effective ways to get them to not keep gravitating towards that one solution instead of really testing out multiple options because a lot of times once people finally walk through that door, they go, oh, my God, I didn't realize it was going to be this easy. Why did I keep myself over there for so long? Yeah, it's a great question. And, in fact, there's a model that I always pull out when I'm talking to organizations that seem like they're in that space where they're stuck and thinking they have to do everything themselves. And this applies, by the way, to solo consultants. It applies to startups. It applies to small businesses. Sometimes it even applies to medium and large businesses. That for all of us, we have things, and it goes up in layers, right? So this is a model that, um, and I'm going to blank on the name of the person who founded it, so I will send it to you an email later, and you can post it on the site. But um, it's a model of competence, essentially. And at the lowest level are things that you are incompetent at. So as a freelancer and a free agent, I have to run every aspect of my business. But I am not a detail person. So I'm going to go ahead and say that I am incompetent at doing my taxes. I can still go to TurboTax and try and get it done and pull my hair out and do all those things. Or I can hire someone to do that for me. So there are things that I'm incompetent at that it's a bad use of my time to do it. And when I have no money, I still have to do those things. But as soon as I make a dollar, the first dollar I make that I invest back into my business is to take an incompetent task off of my plate. And then the second layer up is competent. Okay, these are things I can do, but again, it's not a great use of my time. I'm not great at it. Then the next step up from there is actually exceptional. Here are things I'm really very, very good at. I'm great at writing. I'm exceptional at creating strategies. I can do some of those things really well. However, there's one level above exceptional, and the level above that is unique ability. 
There are things that I can do that nobody else can do, and that's where I add real value. And so the goal when you look at this model is always to be rolling yourself out of the things that are lower down on that list, the things that you're incompetent at, the things that you're competent at, and even the things you're exceptional at, eventually you should try to move off of those things so that you can focus absolutely as much of your time as possible where it really matters. So when I'm talking to startup founders or I'm talking to individual consultants about this kind of stuff, I ask them to spend a week and keep a diary and just label the things that they do based on that scale. And then come back and say, how much of your time is spent doing incompetent and competent stuff? And how much more valuable would that time be if you could be doing other things that you're exceptional or that are your unique ability and really outsource those things that you're incompetent at? And guess what? You're going to get a better result. It's probably going to be 100 times more efficient and you're not going to have to worry about it, so it's not going to suck your engagement and your energy right out of you. So that's how I try and help people understand and think through what they should be looking at outsourcing and what they should be looking at taking off their plates, rather than just looking at everything they do and saying, well, I could hire someone to do this or that or the other thing. There's always too many choices, and everybody has a limited budget. So I always tell people to focus on those incompetent and competent places first if you're going to spend money. Brilliant advice. You know, one of the things that we shared with people that we were going to talk about from free agent was some of the practical um, things that you share in your book. And so I feel like we need to at least address a few of those, even though there's no way we could begin to address everything that you've got in it. And when I looked at your table of contents, especially that second section where you're giving everybody a lot of information on how to make the transition from employee to free agent and how to set things up and what does your professional team need to look like, what are your finances and accounting need to look like, and kind of scrolling all the way down to then when you start talking about pricing, proposals, and contracts and getting your first client, it just kind of stuck out on the page because that's a space where I see a lot of people who are transitioning get stuck. What would be just a piece of advice that you could give them today that will kind of get them over the first step in that space and, and would also encourage them to go ahead and go out and grab themselves a copy of Free Agent so they can learn the rest of how to keep moving in that direction. But I've noticed that people will move from inaction to action once they can put a little bit into place and they feel that small win, it gets the momentum going in the right direction. Yeah, it's very true. The very hardest thing that most freelancers and independent consultants talk about, and you'll hear it whenever we gather together in groups anywhere, is how do you attract and sustain a pipeline of clients? Because it's hard and everybody does it differently, so there's no right answer, but There are a couple of things that I've seen that work, especially for, to your point, that very first, how do I get my first client? So I just want to backtrack for one sec and and give a don't (laughs) before we start in on the do's, right? So the don't that I'm going to give is it's really important not to wake up one morning, decide that you want to make this change, and quit your job, right? You really don't want to just go from I'm an employee, I have a steady stream of income, to I hate my job, I hate my boss, I'm going to go work for myself, see you, bye. It requires a lot of planning. And for most people, I would say between 6 to 12 months of transition time, during which time you're building up a personal brand, you're finding that all-important first transition client or two, and you're testing and learning a little bit about price points, about competition, about what you really do, all of those things. So don't just jump into the fire. Having said that, um, I think that finding a first client and what I always say to people, people really want to err on the side of finding that first client digitally. 
They think they're going to put up a website, they're going to roll up some social media accounts, and they're going to suddenly be out in the world, and people are just going to find them. And I want to debunk that because it doesn't work. It really doesn't work. Unless you're Seth Godin, people are not finding you on the Internet and hiring you. It, they're not going to happen. And I'm sorry if I'm a bucket of cold water on people. It doesn't work that way. The people I know who are successful at building out businesses working for themselves typically get hired for their first gig by someone that they know, someone who trusts them, maybe someone they've worked for in the past as an employee. But typically that first gig comes to you from someone you already know. So you can spend a huge amount of time. And I was at a conference last year where there was a woman talking about social media and she said, social media is free like a puppy is free. And I 100% agree. There are lots and lots of people who are out there on social media who are just sort of throwing things out into the ether and hoping that social media is going to magically return clients to them. Whereas the only people I know who are successful at that have spent tons and tons of time and effort creating a content strategy building out and executing that content strategy, just like you do with this radio, with your blog posts, with all of the other stuff that you do, that's the long-term play. And you should absolutely do that. But the short-term play to get yourself a client today or tomorrow or next week is to go into your personal network, go to people that you know who need what you do, and then ask them. Ask them if you can do work for them. And honestly, the first few gigs you might do for free in order to get testimonials, in order to prove out a process, in order to create a product, whatever you have to do in order to get those first references, you might need to do without getting paid, which goes back to don't just jump ship and decide that you're going to become a free agent on a Tuesday afternoon. But test and learn, and I think that's a really important sort of guiding point. And then the second piece is just don't give up. It's like job hunting. It's like anything else. You don't expect to be successful the very first time you try something new. It takes a long time, and maybe it takes a couple of tries before you develop something that really resonates with your client base, before you really start to see how you personally, with your unique ability, can add value. So that's my advice, and I know that probably doesn't feel quite as reassuring as it might, um, but that's what I've seen successful people do over the last probably five, ten years of my career. Oh, uh, no, I can really appreciate it. it it's <laughs> it gets a little frustrating on my end when people think that social media is the answer to everything because I have to kind of bring them back to the reality of okay, so what are your business objectives, and then what? How are you aligning your marketing activities to those business objectives? And most of the time, what I've discovered is people don't have a current set of business objectives. So all the marketing in the world is not going to help you without having both of those be very, very clear. Amen, sister. (laughs) I completely (laughs) agree. Well, I've got two more questions for you before we have to shift into our next segment. And towards the end of the book, in in your third section, you know, I I love how talk about strategies for long-term success as an independent professional. But there's an area that I notice um, that people have a real challenge with when they're shifting from working from someone else who kind of sets most of their work agenda to having to do it for themselves and it kind of falls in both chapter 16 and 17 when you're talking about the balance of working independent uh, work and life as well as how to overcome some of those challenges that surface when you're an independent worker. What have you noticed, I'm curious Katie, for yourself as you've done this for a little while what was the initial thing that you had to learn about, you know, living a more balanced life so you're not either just all work, 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 or all of a sudden you realize, crap, I haven't gotten anything done, versus what it is today? I think there's two things that I would say that I've noticed both for myself and I observe it in others. So the first thing is where you work. 
I happen to work out of my house. Now, I happen to work out of my house because my son is 15 and he's in school most of the day and because I have a house that I feel comfortable working in. I have an office set up here and I have everything I need to do my work. But I also recognize that there are some people who, if they're working at home, they don't feel like they're professional. They don't feel like they can be as efficient and productive. They get distracted by, oh, my gosh, I need to vacuum. I need to do laundry. I need to do whatever I do. And so I really recommend a nice segue between working for a company versus working for yourself is looking at co-working. If you need the structure and you need the office space around you to make you feel focused and productive, then co-working can be a really fantastic option for you. The flip side of that is for me personally, what I find is it saves me so much time not to have to commute anywhere. And it allows me to work when my creative cycle circles up and says, oh, I have a great idea for something. And I can just sit right down and get that work done right that second. I find that tremendously valuable. I also find that working from home, I have almost no distractions. There's no water cooler. There are no meetings that are being called. I have control over my schedule. And so I think it takes a little bit of discipline initially to figure out how you work best and to not sort of browbeat yourself if you're not working the way you think other people think you should work. So just because you don't, for example, get up and sit down sort of fully dressed in front of your desk at 9 o'clock in the morning and work through until your coffee break at 1030, that doesn't mean that you're not working. So if you're sometimes taking a walk around the block and that's where you get inspiration or you're out in your garden and that's when their best ideas come to you, that's totally fine. There is much more flexibility, especially in creative work. And then the second piece is don't try to fill your day. Don't. It will happen anyway a lot of times. But I really think that we overschedule ourselves whether working for ourselves or working for other people. How many times have you seen people in offices or interacted with people who are working for companies who have back-to-back -back meetings all day long? And they're so busy, they can't think. They can't sit back and say, why am I doing this? So I really encourage you not to feel like you need to be busy all the time, but rather to look at your values and say, what am I trying to do? What's the most efficient task to get there? Am I the best person to do this thing? And then focus on those small wins. Where's my next client? Where's my next proposal? Where's the next work that I can provide awesome value? And how do I go do that? And eliminating some of the sort of other work that ends up on your plate if you're not careful. So crafting how you spend your days, I do think is well worth the time and effort, but it is a little bit challenging because when you work for yourself, you don't have a right way to work. There just isn't one, but whatever works for you is the right way. Uh, so, you know, really, really fascinating over the time frame that I've had an opportunity to just get to talk to people who are doing great work like yourself is that we tend to sometimes really discount what we know about ourselves instead of activating what we know about ourselves. And you touched on those points without directly saying, now this is something that you need to activate, and, and I love it. So I really would encourage everyone today who's listening, because listeners have told us this is effective, to go back and listen to this again. You know, give it a couple of weeks, but go back and listen to what Katie talked about again today. Because um, it's a short conversation. It's only 30 minutes. And you can, you can do that while you're doing your walk or whatever your exercise routine is. Because one of the things that I've forgotten to remind listeners about is when they combine listening to us here on Breakthrough Radio with a physical activity, they actually retain that information longer and they end up stimulating their creative thought process of how they can put it into action. So before we go to shift into our Breakthrough Bite, Katie, we've got a question that I've only forgotten to ask in the past 
nine going on ten years, two times, and Lou in New York reminded me both times very loudly, so I have never forgotten again. (laughs) And this is just a fun question that we ask at the end of our interview that has, you know, it's not about your area of expertise. It's just learning a little bit about who Katie is and what she thinks and what's important to her. And so we, we call it our brain download question because what happened is the, the the story behind it is I was watching Star Trek one day, and you know how Spock does his whole mind meld thing? I was watching the show, because I know none of our listeners ever do this. They never yell back at the screen. I said, I don't want to know everything that happened in his entire life from the beginning to end. Just tell me why he made that choice and that decision. And as soon as it came out of my mouth, I was like, whoa, wait a minute. That's actually a good question. If you have the opportunity to understand why someone, whether someone's in the past, someone from the present, or someone from the future, has made their choices and their decisions, whose brain would you pick to have that download with and why? Oh, that's such a great question. So I'll tell you who off the top of my head, and it's funny, there are so many, first of all, that I could choose because there are so many people from the famous ones, you know, you look at Richard Branson, right? You look at Steve Jobs, you look at these people who are tremendously successful, Elon Musk, all of these people who are out there creating stuff and that we all kind of look up to. And I think I could pick from any of those people and you'd all nod and smile and go, yep, Katie, that's fine choice. Um, But then I also want to look at people who have taken career left turns, who have started in one place and ended up in another place. And so somebody that I find fascinating in that space has always been Walt Disney. And the reason I find Walt Disney so fascinating is because he was a designer of cartoons. He was a graphic artist. And then he became fascinated by how people work and live. So I feel this real kinship to what he was thinking about when he built Disney World and when he built particularly Epcot, and he was thinking about the future and how people would live and work in the future, how they would balance their work and their life, all of these things he was trying to figure out. And I would love to sit down with him and just, A, pick his brain and say, why were you struggling with that, right? Why was that the struggle? And I see what you've done to sort of express how you think that vision is going to be. Now I wish he could see the world today and comment on it, but of course he can't. He's long since dead. But I think it's just so interesting to take a look at anybody who's a visionary, anybody who's an entrepreneur, and ask them how they see the world. Because people who are trying to solve problems, people who are trying to invent solutions to problems, and certainly I feel like this when I talk to Yared, that he's trying to find solutions to problems he sees in the world. And anybody who's doing that is absolutely worth an hour, two hours, ten hours of my time, any day of the week. Well, Katie, I really appreciate you coming on Breakthrough Radio today. I encourage everybody to go out and grab a copy of Free Agent and to keep an eye out for your new book that's being released as well. And I'd like to ask you, can we bring you back on in early 2018? Of course. I am happy to come visit and talk anytime. That sounds wonderful. Well, we ran a couple of minutes over, and I don't want people to miss all of what Yard is going to share. So I'm going to go ahead and shift gears here real quickly and jump into his segment, and, you know, I'll follow up with you with a lovely email, and we'll see what we can do early 2018. I think you have a lot to contribute to our listeners. Well, thank you so much, Michelle. It's been great to be on the show. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. So, guys, I'm going to shift this over really quickly into Yard Akalu's segment. He is out at TechCrunch right now, and so he pre-recorded his first part of Leading Tomorrow's Workforce. So let's click that and let's see what he's going to teach us today. Hello, listeners. This is Yard Akalu, founder of GetAlcove.com and guest host of Breakthrough Radio, covering the future of workforce. 
I'm especially happy to be here today because I have plenty to be thankful for uh, just coming out of Hurricane Harvey down here in Houston, Texas. Want to give a huge thanks to all that provided relief support and uh, for those that continue to send your positive thoughts. Today, I'm going to talk about a first of its series about effective leadership. And we'll start it off on a title called Leading Tomorrow's Workforce, where I'll highlight the different ways leaders are responding uh, or not to the current disruption of just about everything we do at work. Now, speaking of, we're just getting back to somewhat of a new normal in Houston, including everyone driving back into work. Now, the only difference is one major highway has been out of commission, thus causing people to take the other two into the city. Now, the effect has made the infamous Los Angeles Highway, the 45, look like a Sunday's drive. Why do you suppose every single employee needs to be physically present in the office, especially at a time like this? Question for the companies and the leaders. Can I compare it to roll count at elementary school? You know, remember when you used to raise your hand and say, present? Uh, I, I literally have to laugh at the absurdity of it all right now. But on the positive note, the re resilience of the community and the support of of a federal city uh, government has been overwhelming. And I uh, just want to take a moment to, again, thank everyone for uh, the overwhelming support. But I want to put this into another spin here. There are some leaders who are still grappling with the negative perception that you can't be productive out of his or her line of sight. Fortunately, this type of leadership and thinking is, is really on borrowed time. I'm sure many of you have even seen the news about Apple's coveted new headquarters, uh, Apple Park, right? You know, the meticulous detail to the materials selected, uh, ensuring the, the gaps between the doors have the same tolerances as their products. I mean, frankly, it's, it's quite stunning and, and, and a beautifully uh, designed building. It's also touted as the most energy efficient building in the world. Again, very impressive, albeit a $5 billion budget. What's interesting is the reaction you may have also read about from a few key leaders regarding the open planned environment. I don't know about anyone that's listening, but I'm scratching my head on that one. But then I quickly think, eh, you know, Apple always have, they, they, they seem to have this last minute reveal that who's and awes people. And I'm thinking Apple has an app for it, a solution for the problems that are caused in open plan workspaces. An app that allows employees to push, push up half walls at a touch of a button like hideaway, hideaway TVs uh, are in custom bedrooms, maybe. Now, supposedly, there have been a few staff members who have also expressed their displeasure. And some reports suggest that there'll be some attrition due to the open floor plans. Now, imagine that. You know the talent that works at Apple, and you know what they produce. Apple is the highest revenue generating uh, you know, company in human history, I mean, and the question is to what level of talent will now leave just because they have no flexibility in how they work? Well, there's an author called David Jones of the book, The Million Dollar Hire, who suggests that there'll be a few individual contributors of your company, and maybe in Apple's case, that perhaps will lose just that by their talent leaving, that the intellectual IP that leaves with them could be upwards of $1 million or more. Now, I've been actually impressed with the 
different workspace furniture companies that have created these uh, new lines of contract furniture to address these issues of open plan offices. Uh, the, the, I think the two single most uh, or the highest complaints about these open um, spaces is the visual and, and, and auditory noise that it causes. So numerous disruptions that happen throughout the day. And then after that disruption, you know, it's taking upwards of 20 to 30 minutes to really get back into the zone of what you're doing. So these furniture companies now are creating these wonderfully designed furniture systems, if you will, to support the different working styles and needs of, of talent, right? And with Apple's unlimited budget, I'm sure they'll be uh, laid out throughout their, their building. But for our listeners that don't have upwards of $3,000 or more to spend on these workspace seating solutions, I'd like to, for the first time on BBS Radio, share a little bit more about what I do outside of my segment, The Future of Workforce. To address this challenge of open offices, I'm on a mission to help people create their best work. Now, I'm thankfully doing so in, in two ways. Again, one is sharing the research and insights that I gather every day in, my, uh, in, in the pursuit of, of my goal. The other is through my startup, Alcove, and the website getalcove.com. We are launching a first-of-its-kind laptop case that opens up into a mobile workstation to enhance privacy when you're working in open spaces. And I've recognized that work is evolving into an activity that moves with us and is becoming really for good or bad, part of our lifestyle. As such, my partner and I have found that there needs to be a way for people to get their focus whenever they need to independent of their physical work environment. So if that makes sense to you, I want to go further and just invite you to join our Kickstarter launch, which we'll be launching live at Tech, Tech Disrupt San Francisco next Wednesday. So to, to wrap up our segment about leadership, the the, co the pros and cons of disrupting established work cultures can be described as, it, it, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a consequence to every action, right? And, and really my point is, you can't build a company and work culture and then make sudden sweeping changes without affecting bottom line productivity. You know, one such company that offers free sodas one day only to decide that removing this perk will save their company 5,000 in annual savings, it, you know, is bound to chip away and contribute to the disengaged employee uh, percentages out there. You know, building a great work culture starts with a vision, right? And then it evolves through the daily actions of employers and employees. And this is where leadership has an opportunity to not only match the vision that you started with, but to make real sacrifices to ensure that the people that you brought on have the same emotional attachment, vigor, and dedication as the first day when you hired them. So, you know, when you make decisions solely based on driving P&L, they'll slowly chip away at your morale. And, and your people, and you will lose good, good talent. You know, going back to Apple, I see their employee mojo so high, why break what isn't messed up? At the very minimum, key leaders should have been involved in the prototyping uh, process of the workspaces. But I know Apple will prevail. I'm a big fan, and I'm eager to see how Apple Park plays out for their employees. So this is the first installment of our series, Leading Tomorrow's Workforce. We will continue next month, 
Join me on the third Monday of the Future of Workforce Breakthrough Byte for more insights. Well, Yard, I want to thank you so much for the insights that you bring us every third Monday, and I'm really looking forward to you having a very successful Kickstarter for Alco. You know, because your feedback has been so important to all of us here on Breakthrough Radio, our intention is to bring you guests each week that expand your knowledge and inspire your actions to grow your business. And, you know, to accomplish that, it benefits us both to hear what you like, what you didn't like, which topics you're enjoying, which ones you want to learn more about. And you can always email us those requests to the breakthrough specialist at gmail.com. Who else would you like to hear from? Who else would you like to learn from? Make sure you let us know. And remember, our brain download question is fun as well as important. The intention is to remind you to ask yourself, how am I making my choices and my decisions? This is Michelle Price here delivering you the best business minds each Monday live. I'm coming to you from the third coast of Houston, Texas, where, you know what, we love working with you a business down the street as well as around the world, telling your dynamic story, attracting your ideal customers. We'll talk with you next Monday. 